Lex orandi, lex credendi. Uh, The law of prayer is the law of faith. How we pray, how we worship, how we praise the Lord shapes what we believe. And so we return to a sermon series that I began 10 years ago, January of 2013. I've returned to annually since then, and we are now at Psalm 86. But before we turn to Psalm 86, I thought it would be useful for us to remember why we are seeking to learn and study the whole of the Psalter. And why it is beneficial for us as new covenant Christians to read and sing the songbook of the old covenant. And so we'll take a moment this morning looking at, in particular, Psalms 1 and 2. Um, and I'll be uh, making the point that these Psalms stand as an introduction to uh, the Psalter as a whole. One of the things we see that these two Psalms alone, out of the entirety of the first book, don't have titles. So they stand at the front without titles, and they are united in their themes. Let's rise now for the reading of the Old Testament. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Thus far, the reading of God's Holy Word. Uh, Join me now in our prayer of illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of Thy Word. We praise You for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for Thy name's sake. Amen. For the reading of the New Testament, please turn with me to Acts 4, verses 23 through 31, um, found on page 912 in your pew Bibles. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth 
set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their heart, their Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Uh, please pray with me the prayer for understanding printed in your bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. I love that passage from Acts. Uh, because it's one of the best answers, uh, one of the best examples of answered prayer in the New Testament. The apostles pray that the Lord would enable them to speak with boldness, and then they speak boldly. It's, it's a wonderful thing. But we chose it this morning because it shows how the apostles understood the Psalms to be about Jesus, to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it also shows how the apostles incorporated the Psalms into their prayers. And so we want to emulate the apostles. We want to learn uh, this book of prayer and praise and read it and study it uh, together. I thought of the Hallelujah Chorus this week from Handel's Messiah. Um, my family and I went to the Messiah sing-along at the Kennedy Center. I saw uh, some other folks from here, uh, there. And, uh, you know, when you sit through the whole of the Messiah, uh, sometimes uh, the, the hallelujah chorus kind of sneaks up on you, right? Like, oh, I know this one, right? It's, it's really popular. It's played all the time. It's very familiar. And it stands out. It's, it's a glorious sort of climactic movement in this wonderful, large somewhat lengthy uh, piece of music. But I thought of, of the difference between the Hallelujah Chorus, which you know can be used as background music for a montage scene in a romantic comedy, or in, as a snippet on its own, and the Hallelujah Chorus in the context of the Messiah. And when you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, after all the emotional highs and lows, the variations, the contrasts, the soloists, the choruses, the instrumentals. When you get to the Hallelujah Chorus in context, it's really amazing. And it's not the end. right? It, it's this beautiful climactic bolt of lightning. And then there's a denouement. There's a, a conclusion. And, and the Messiah ends with a glorious Amen. Rolling, rolling, Amen. And this is a wonderful image I've tried to find many images over the years, but I think there's a wonderful image for individual psalms and the Psalter. Each individual psalm is a beautiful composition, an inspired poem. It gives us a snapshot of the human heart, of our faith, of God's redeeming work, of His Messiah. 
But the Psalter as a whole, and this is something more of a unique or a a less understood idea, the Psalter as a whole comes to us with a shape and a message. John Calvin in his commentary on the first psalm makes an offhanded comment about whoever it was that collected these 150 psalms. Maybe it was Ezra. You know, you read through Ezra and he returns and goes to help rebuild and reestablish the temple and he's collecting all these old books that have grown dusty. Someone at some point collected this book. Maybe it was a handful of people in a, in a small period of time. Maybe it was a community over generations. And they did so with great design and care. Not unlike Handel's Messiah. That it would have a message uh, for God's people. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that uh, this is uh, like some, you know, secret Da Vinci code. That you can't understand a psalm unless you get the big picture. But I do want us to grow as a church in our love for these Old Testament uh, scriptures. And I know that in my experience growing up, it's common uh, that people will have a favorite psalm, right? Or a favorite verse from a psalm. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Or um, Psalm 139, you, though you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's Mother's Day, right? That's a good psalm. Or uh, Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. These verses of poetry, carefully constructed, cling in our minds. They're made to be sticky and they're beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's their design and their purpose. But the big whole mosaic, and I thought of this image as well, a photo mosaic, maybe sometimes you see it on the cover of a magazine, made up of a bunch of individual photos shrunken down, and together they have a big picture, right? And so that's what we are celebrating and exploring in this series each and every summer. And it's useful because we're in and out, we travel, we get a lot of visitors, and every psalm stands on its own. It's kind of like if I had thought of giving Sarah a pearl for Mother's Day. You know, that would be nice and all, but a pearl necklace is a little bit nicer, right? Every psalm is like a beautiful, precious pearl. But the Psalter is a pearl necklace. And so that's why, with as many new faces as we see in the church this morning, I want to reset this series a little bit on the 10-year anniversary and give you a sense of the big picture before next week we pick back up in Psalm 86. And the best way really to do that is to look again, we've done it a few times before, at Psalms 1 and 2 as an introduction. And uh, there are three main points I want to make about Psalms 1 and 2 as an introduction. First, interconnection. Psalms are often related and compiled with the psalm next to them with a purpose and a design. And we see Psalm 1 opens with the word blessing, the blessed man. And Psalm 2 closes with the word blessed is the man. And Psalm 1 and 2 present two different paths toward blessing. Psalm 1 presents the path of God's law and meditating on God's law and obeying it. And Psalm 2 presents the path of faith, of trust in the gospel. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so we see many other themes that knit these two psalms together. But I want you to see that even throughout the Psalter, we often see neighboring psalms informing one another of their meaning and their purpose. And second, I've already mentioned it, so this is very brief. Blessing, blessing itself is one of the introductory themes of the whole Psalter. How the Lord blesses us. And each and every book closes with, blessed be the Lord God, a blessing of us of God. 
That's what praise and prayer is. God blesses us and we respond by blessing Him. And finally, law and gospel. The Psalms as a book portray both law and gospel to us. They point us the way of holiness. Yes, convict us of our sin. And they hold forth to us Christ. Well, let me take just a moment now to to look at the, the argument of these two Psalms. There's a great drama in the Psalter. And like all effective drama, there are characters that drive it forward. And we meet right off the bat the blessed man. This is a man singular who would be uh, blessed of the Lord. And as is often the case in biblical wisdom, blessing is presented as a choice, a way between two different paths. And so the, the blessed man is known, first of all, by his separation, his distance, by way of negation, that he does not sit with the, the man of wickedness from whom the psalm is distinguished. Again, the wicked will be a recurring character in the drama of the Psalter. As we see, as we turn to Psalm 2 in a second, right? They're raging. The kings of the nations are raging. So Psalm 1 tells us who this blessed man is. He meditates on the law of God day and night. And this really introduces to us uh, the third character of the Psalter, who's really the first character, the Lord. The Lord, right? Both the The blessed and the wicked have a relationship with God. It's a relationship of blessing or a relationship of judgment. And this judgment is really the drama that drives the Psalter on. The Psalter is eschatological, we might say. It points us forward to the coming and judgment of the Lord. Now this uh, law and gospel dramatic description of of two ways of holiness and wickedness does present some danger for self-righteousness or prosperity gospel, right? Oh, look at me. I'm the blessed man of of God. And that's where Psalm 2 and the theme of the Psalter, as well as even the sinfulness of God's people, comes into play. The Psalter is not a recipe for how we can make ourselves blessed. The Lord is is the one who blesses. The Lord is the one who blesses His people. Psalm 1 also introduces the idea of instruction. Now, in our songs in church, maybe we think this way. I know that I really didn't when I was in sort of uh, uh, a Bible church, a non-denominational church. But I didn't think of worship as a means of instruction. I didn't think of my singing as a way that God was teaching and shaping His people. And yet that's clearly how the Bible thinks about worship. We are, we are praying to God through these words and we're communicating with one another. So when Psalm 1 says that he delights in the law of God, the Torah of God, it's no mistake that we'll then see, as my second main point of my outline says, that the Psalter is divided into five books. We have five books of Moses in the Torah and we have five books of David in the Psalter. Five five books of God's law and five books of God's worship. Again, lex orandi, lex credendi. The Psalter presumes that singing and praising God with the words that He has given to us will not only shape our hearts and our feelings and help us express our emotions to God in a faithful manner, but will shape our faith and strengthen it and deepen it and ground us more firmly in the rock, the fortress of our saving God. So you read Psalm 1 and you have this somewhat 
It's dynamic. There's a coming judgment, but it's a, it's a, a somewhat stable picture, right? There's a righteous man here and a wicked man here, and judgment's coming. But you read Psalm 2, and it's a battle scene. The nations uh, are in conflict. And uh, there are many connections, as I've already said, blessing, the idea of God's judgment. Uh, the meditating in Psalm 1 is the same word we find with the vain plotting of the wicked man, right? The blessed man of God is meditating on his law, but wicked people plot against their heavenly God. Even the contrast of subject matter, the focus on the blessed man in the first Psalm and the wicked man in Psalm 2 presents a sort of unity by way of contrast. But Psalm 2 introduces a new theme, an addition to Psalm 1. And that is, the Lord reigns. The basic message of Psalm 2 and of the Psalter is that the Lord reigns. And importantly, the Lord reigns through His anointed. Through His representative on earth. Um, This explains why the blessed man delights in his law. This is why he's rewarded with abundant and fruitful life. That he may be the faithful king. Who represents God. So the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the anointed Messiah of Psalm 2. The Psalms also remind us that this kingship of God is grounded in creation. God is the creator, the maker. He rules over all nations. And he is also king for his rule and redemption. The Psalter will often, of course, as we've seen in recent years, look back to the Exodus. Look back to how God has conquered Israel's enemies. How he has delivered David from times of battle. Because the Lord reigns, the Psalms argue, all praise and glory belong to him. He should be praised and magnified. And the Psalter starts with a presumption that we don't know how to do it. We need to be taught. We need to be tutored. We need to be led. And so all the Psalms, the whole Psalter as it were, sometimes you'll hear people speak of of Messianic Psalms. Psalm 2 is a Messianic Psalm because it speaks of the Messiah. Or Psalm 110 speaks of the Messiah, the, the King. Our view here in this series is that the whole Psalter is fundamentally Messianic. And we'll see this again and again and again. The drama of Psalm 2 centers around the enthronement of the Lord's representative on Mount Sion. And this will be the theme, the great contest, the great battle. That the Lord has established His King and the world and its sin and rebellion rejects that. Psalm 2 not only introduces the reign of the Lord, but it introduces His servant. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, and this is a bit countercultural of the church's culture today, that the Psalms, even though they describe so many of the varieties of, of the human hearts and our emotions and speak so powerfully of it, the Psalms are not first and foremost about us. They're about Jesus. And even describing human emotion, they're describing the emotions that He, in a sanctified way, experienced on our behalf and redeemed our sorrows our trials, our agonies. They're really about God and His way and His work of salvation. Moses foretold the coming of a king for Israel in Deuteronomy 17. And he said that when the king sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him 
and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them. The king was to be the true, faithful Israelite, sinless in all his ways. Of course, the drama of the Psalter, one of the great dramas, is how far David falls from that ideal. But that really brings us to our second point of this sermon. And uh, I'm really only briefly going to introduce this. It's just something that will be unfolded through the course of the series. But there is both law and gospel in the Psalter. The ideal king is our redeemer. And this is portrayed in what are known as the five books of the Psalter. Again, no time to go into detail. But as you read through your pew Bible, you will see um, after Psalm 41 uh, or before 42, uh, book 2. Before Psalm 73, book 3. Before Psalm 90, book 4. Before Psalm 107, book 5. There are these five divisions. It's a play in five acts, as it were. And in Psalm, in book 1, rather, uh, the first 40 Psalms, David is established as the king. Isn't it amazing that you have, you have in, in Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed, right? And he's victorious over all God's enemies. And look, if you will, I don't have my Bible open to this anymore, it's open to Acts. But if you look at Psalm 3, we see that it's a psalm about when David is attacked by Absalom. Immediately, and throughout book 1, there's great conflict as David's kingship is challenged. And yet God is faithful. So book 1 is about the covenant, the promise made to David and its establishment. And book 2 is about how there was a promise not only for David, but for his son that he would sit on the throne. And so book 2 is about the establishment of his son as his heir. And it ends with Psalm 72, which is a psalm of Solomon. Book 3, which we're in right now, calls into question this covenant. And there is a, a verse we'll see when we get to Psalm 89, a lengthy psalm, that questions, Lord, why... Has the crown fallen off your king? Why is it in the dirt? Why and where have your promises been fulfilled? Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106, points us to the truth and reality. It takes us back. It starts with the Psalm of Moses, that the Lord reigns even when he doesn't have a king on earth. And indeed, there are many clear signs that the Psalter is compiled and composed during the exile. When the king was off the throne, when the kingdom was defunct, and the people were in Babylon or were returning, and there was none of the former glory. And so you have all of these songs of the king and of the glory, and book four says, the Lord reigns. Again and again and again, we have these kingship psalms that say, the Lord reigns. You can be anywhere on earth. You can be scattered among the nations. The Lord reigns. And book five closing motion, as it were, focuses on praise, praising the Lord. One of the interesting things about how these five books fit together and the the title that this collection has, the title is the book of praises. But there's a lot of psalms that aren't praises. There are a lot of psalms that are laments, that are sorrowful, that are sad, that are confessions, that talk about sin. 
But what we see is that the number of praises in the Psalter gradually get more and more and more until Book 5 has a number of Hallel collections, collections of praises. And the final five Psalms all open and close with praise the Lord. So the argument of the Psalter, the argument that the Psalter is taking us through is how do you praise the Lord when things are going bad? It's teaching us how to praise God when we're sorrowful. When Nathan comes and convicts us of our sin with Bathsheba. It's teaching us how to praise God when our plans are falling to pieces. It's a wonderful drama that the Christian church has recognized she needs in the world now. Right When we worship an ascended king. We don't have a king or a kingdom here on earth. But much like those Old Testament saints as in exile, as we've been studying on our Thursday night series, our king is in heaven. And we need to praise him among the sadness and sorrow of this world. Well, that's the argument, brothers and sisters, of the Psalter, as much as I can do it in about 14 minutes. But I want to close... And I put in our bulletin, and there's probably uh, 25 more, but I want to close with a sort of a speed round of 25 reasons to read, pray, and sing the Psalms. I haven't been keeping track of my time, but I think I have about 10 minutes left. So, the first three sort of hang together. And every one of these can start the Psalms. We should read, pray, and sing Psalms because the Psalms blank. Because the Psalms praise the Lord, because the Psalms praise Jesus, and because the Psalms praise Christ. Yahweh, the Lord, the name Yahweh, appears 695 times in the Psalter. In the Greek, Yahweh is translated by kurios. And when we call Jesus Christ Lord, we are calling Him kurios. We are calling Him Yahweh. Jesus himself in Matthew 21, when the teachers of the law were concerned with the praise he received at the triumphal entry, said, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? Jesus says, that praise in the Psalter is my praise. The Lord of the Psalms is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Psalms praise Jesus. Last week, Luke taught our catechism lesson, Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? And we sang together Psalm 66, 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. My salvation. Jesus is given that name because He is our salvation. He is the Savior of whom we sing in the Psalter. There are some, and I've met pastors, Reformed pastors, who say, well, we shouldn't sing too many Psalms because we need to praise the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus isn't in the Psalter. To which I would respond, the name Jesus is in the Psalter. He's my salvation. The Psalms praise Christ. As I've already tried to argue, the entire Psalter is messianic. It's about the Messiah, the Christ. It's about the Lord's anointed king. And though David is the paradigmatic king, Psalm 110 tells us, and Jesus told us, that the son of David is greater than him. The Messiah calls us to look forward 
to the Christ. These things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Every one of the Psalms is singing about Jesus Christ. When he, in Luke 24, critiques the apostles, he says, slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer, then to enter his glory. He's telling us that the the Psalms tell us why the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, has to suffer. And that that His glory comes through that suffering. That's what Jesus sings in Psalm 22 from the cross. The Psalms unite the Old and New Testament. I read a quote this week that every true Christian is an honorary Jew. There's a lot of truth to that. We can't understand the promises Christ fulfilled if we don't understand our Old Testaments. And the Psalms, singing the Psalms, the praise of God's people, looking forward to the coming Christ, remind us in a concrete way each and every day that we are one church with them. The Psalms teach us about the temple. In Ephesians, a few weeks ago, we read about how the church is a holy temple built upon the cornerstone of Christ. It is the dwelling place of God. And that idea is fulfilling an idea that's presented to us in the Psalter. Psalm 26, O Lord, how I love your place of habitation. Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 51, after confessing his sins, David goes to the temple, that place of washing and forgiveness. The Psalms of Ascents are all about the people going to the temple in their time of pilgrimage. The Psalms are inspired worship. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege we have, what a joy we have, that God has given us words to sing to Him. We can't say this. Now, this is not an argument for exclusive psalmody, which has been a position of some in the church and in Reformed churches. Hymns are lovely. We can sing a new psalm to the Lord. But no hymn written by man is like a psalm written by the Spirit of God. What a privilege we have to sing words of inspired worship. I don't know if you've ever visited a strange church and you know, a song goes up on the overhead or whatever and people start singing like, I'm not sure I should be singing along with this. You never have to worry about that with this altar. The psalms model prayer for us. They teach us how to pray. Brothers and sisters, sung worship is sung prayer. We're we're not just singing because we feel good. We're not just emoting. We're praising God. And the Psalms model that for us. The Psalms model confession for us. Psalm 51. If you're feeling like a sinner, every once in a while I feel like a sinner. Every day. Read Psalm 51. It is a perfect prayer of confession. David had sent one of his best friends, one of the mighty men of Israel, one of the 30 who are sung and praised and glorified throughout the Old Testament, to the front lines to die because he cheated with his wife. And that man would not sleep with her at home while his friends were on the front. So to cover up his sins, David had that man killed. And he begins by confessing, Against you only have I sinned, Lord. The blessed man of the Psalter, David, is a sinner saved by grace. The Psalms make our faith concrete. What do I mean by that? I mean the power of images. We may not have graven images in the worship of God's people. That's one of the basic principles of God's law. 
And yet we do have verbal images. We have powerful word pictures. Powerful ideas that make our faith memorable and concrete. The valley of the shadow of death. Tears in a bottle. Weeping and joy. God gives us images to hang our faith upon. And the Psalms apply the gospel to our heart. Loving, longing, feeling. That's who we are as human beings. We are worshiping creatures. And we love and we worship what we desire. And the Psalms speak to emotion. You worship what you love. And the Psalms give you language and images to love, to worship God. The Psalms are memorable. They're poetry. Think not only, but you may think of the acrostics. There are Psalms that are literally the ABCs. We use these for our children so they can learn the alphabet. The Psalms were meant to be memorized. And they are compact, dense language of faith for us to treasure in our hearts. The Psalms, brothers and sisters, number 12, are realistic about the suffering of believers. This is the blues section of the record store. If you ever have been to a record store. I guess they have genres, right, in, uh, in streaming services. Again, the Messiah had to suffer before he could enter his glory. And you know what, brothers and sisters? The hard word of the gospel is that we have to suffer before we enter our glory. That's why we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And the Psalter is language for a suffering people. Psalm 137, rarely sung in a Christian church. Difficult to read. Talks about bashing the heads of Babylonian babies against the stones. Why? Why is there such vicious, ugly language in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible? Because God's people were so desperately abused and beaten. They were longing for justice. The Psalms teach us the theology of the cross. That God is present with us in the pit. That Jesus came down and made God manifest by suffering with us and for us. The Psalms not only speak of our sorrow, but they turn our sorrow to praise. They teach us how to pray to God faithfully in difficult times. And they teach us also, 15, to praise the Creator. We are His sheep, the workmanship of His hands. We live, whether or not you like it, in a a deistic, materialistic age. God has been taken out of creation. We live in a godless world where we're practically atheists in the way we think about the world. The Psalms remind us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That it is God who sends rain and snow and hail. That this sun is shining forth from God himself. The Psalms comfort sinners with forgiveness. Again, David, the greatest sinner, is the greatest saint in the Psalter. Psalm 51, 32, 130. They go on and on. The Psalms, brothers and sisters, lay the foundation and they exhort us to public worship. Psalm 120 to 134 are a whole collection about people to sing while they're on their way to the festival. A pilgrimage. They remind us that we are God's people preeminently. We are a church preeminently when we are gathered here. Unified in Christ by His Spirit, by our baptism, by our confession. 
The Psalms taste, teach faith alone. The psalmist is saved by trusting not in princes, not in chariots, but in the Lord. Some people will say in polemic fervor, the Bible doesn't teach faith alone. Every time the Psalms talk about trusting in the Lord as the only Savior, the only Deliverer, the only Rock, the only Fortress, they're teaching us faith alone. 19. The Psalms unite us with the historic church. We know, we read in our New Testament lesson, we know the apostles used the Psalms in their worship. We have been commanded by Paul to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice that the word of Christ dwells in us when we sing psalms. Because he's the singer of the psalms. We worship with Christ when we sing psalms. And the psalms have been the bedrock of song worship in the Christian church for 2,000 years, indeed back 3,000 years to David. The song of the sea, Moses Perhaps the oldest piece of scripture, one of the oldest pieces in the Bible, is a very, very old song. So we're united when we sing Genevan tunes here. When we sing early church psalm settings, we're united with the saints through the ages. But something we often forget is that the psalms unify generations within the church. Churches today often split or start based on a particular worship style. Oh, who are you trying to reach? You know, hipsters, uh, this, this sort of key melody, this kind of band, this kind of music. And they split over songbooks. What words do you sing? And of course, it's funny, there's an entire book on this uh, by T. David Gordon about um, why Johnny can't sing hymns. It's a funny book. Where he says, it's funny how the modern church has elevated novelty to virtue status. Now, sometimes new is good, right? But he says, you can drive down the street and see churches. You used to be able to do this. This is more of a 90s thing. We sing contemporary praise songs as though novelty is a virtue. Well, if your focus is always on novelty, you're always leaving the songs of prior generations behind. You're leaving prior generations behind. What a wonderful thing, wouldn't it be, to sing a song at your grandfather's funeral? That is sung at your father's funeral. That is sung at your funeral and your children's funeral and your grandchildren's funeral. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Shouldn't we seek to build a church that lasts for generations? That worships God? The Psalms unify nations. They're global. Yeah, we can discover different tunes. We don't have to sing Western European psalm tunes. But that the music can be joined all over the globe because we worship one Lord, one faith, one spirit. The Psalms are ecumenical. Just met some visitors from an Orthodox Presbyterian church today. And we share a songbook with the OPC. Of course, we share a Psalter with the entire Christian church. We share a Psalter with Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. What a wonderful thing. I actually uh, gave one of our Trinity Psalter hymnals to a music teacher at Clare School who's a Roman Catholic composer and musician. He said, thank you for this ecumenical gift. Hymns unite the church. Psalms unite the church. The Psalms age well. A lot of faddish music gets old. But the Psalms last and dwell with us. 
and related. Number 24. Everyone's thinking, we're almost done. The Psalms reward meditation. You can listen to them like good poetry, for they are the greatest of poetry. Again and again and again, you can read and meditate on them. To prepare for this sermon, I read, but mostly listened to the Psalter in the last week. It's not too hard to do. Sometimes it was a little bit much. But it's amazing how the words of the Psalms can come back again and again and again. And you hear them in a different way every time. And finally, the Psalms cultivate a longing for the heavenly Jerusalem. The Lord's coming in judgment. God's gathering His people. His King rules and reigns. And as we are in this pilgrimage, the Christian life of pilgrimage, to assemble before His throne, that's what the Psalms hold before us. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, as we've returned to this series, uh, to consider making it your practice this summer to read through the Psalms. Uh, there's a lot of monthly reading plans, weekly reading plans. A lot of the uh, medieval monks used to pray and read through the Psalms every week, the entire Psalter. That's why it was so much ingrained in the blood of Martin Luther and other saints. Or just start reading the Psalter and be blessed by it. Let's come now to the Supper of our Lord. Merciful God, we thank you for this picture, many, many pictures, this mosaic of faith you have given to us. This great storehouse of human emotion, catalog of joy and sorrow, but mostly of your holiness and of your grace in Christ, the Messiah. Lord, feed us and bless us as we come to this table. And remind us, dear Lord, that we sing of Jesus. We sing and praise Jesus. That is always our goal and our desire. But we sing and pray of Jesus, even in these psalms, as he is the Lord's anointed, who has fulfilled all these promises and granted us his blessings. In Christ's name we pray. Pray. Amen.